Welcome to Democracy in Color with Steve Phillips, a color-conscious podcast about politics. I'm your host, Steve Phillips, and I hope you had a good Martin Luther King Day. I had forgotten just how hard it is for me to handle all of the insincerity and hypocrisy that flows on this holiday. Right In the same day that you have Dr. King's children marching and asking the United States Senate to reform the filibuster to be able to pass the cause of King's life, one of the causes of his life, voting rights, you have Kirsten Sinema from Arizona, Senator, blocking that reform, tweeting out about Martin Luther King holiday. You've got, uh, I try to get my refuge sometimes in watching sports. And so at the same time, there's 32 NFL teams. I think there's one team now that has a black head coach in a sport that's 70% black. And so you would think that, and then there's a bunch of openings that people are going to be hired, et cetera. But what the football world is doing is putting little stickers on the backs of the helmets of people saying MLK, and that's how they I'm like, well, how about putting coaches on the sidelines who are in charge? And, but in terms of both inspiring and cathartic, and I totally get it, there's a whole, and we'll link to this, Nicole Hannah-Jones, um, the driver of the whole 1619 Project, New York Times, she gave a speech. And then some people had tried to kind of like criticize her speech ahead of time, et cetera, and then did, uh, as on Martin the King Day. So she changed her whole speech to the whole first half of it was just quotes from King, but radical quotes. And then in the middle, then she flipped and says, that's all King stuff. It like blew people's minds in terms of their understanding of who he actually is. So I totally love that. So, you know, as you may have gleaned from the past minute or so, the, for, for many African-Americans, there's a lot of complicated emotions going along with having this holiday, but we plow forward. And so in terms of moving towards this episode, you know, I'm reflective and mindful of King saying in 1957 to Congress, give us the ballot and we will no longer have to worry the federal government about our basic rights. We will, by the power of our vote, write the laws on the statute books. And so as in so many other things, you know, King was in fact prophetic. And then in, in, in most dramatically and relevant to the current moment in his home state of Georgia, which in 2020 was critical to ousting the white nationalists in the White House. And then in 2021, wresting away control of Congress from the white nationalist enablers who controlled the Senate. And most poignantly, his actual successor at Ebenezer Baptist Church, Reverend Warnock, winning election to the Senate to flip the Senate to the Democrats could hold it all off of giving us the ballot so that we could actually transform politics in this country. But as we head to 2022, there's all the, the atmosphere and the mood and the assumptions are all very pessimistic around Democrats are going to lose, lots of doom and gloom, et cetera. And it, in, in many of these articles by like, you know, the probably mainstream people are taken as a fait accompli that the Republicans are going to take control. And But I'm happy to report that pretty much everything you're reading and hearing about the midterm elections is wrong. These analyses are incorrectly interpreting historical data. It, I think further adding to the pessimism was that not only is that midterms traditionally bad, but that this is the once every decade redistricting, and that the redistricting was supposed to wipe out the Democrat um, any chance of holding the House of Representatives. And so happily to report, and what we're going to get into in this podcast is that much of most of that analysis is off and things are not nearly as dire as we have been led to believe. 
And so on this episode, we're here to clear up a lot of these things, give you some hope and point you in the right direction for what we can do to hold Congress and even expand the Democratic majorities in 2022. And there's actually very late breaking and very promising news about how this redistricting is playing itself out in the states. So we really want to get in to all of that. So to get into all of that, I'm joined as always by my co-host Charlene Chang. And also, as we're getting into the numbers, our esteemed data doctor, Dr. Julie Martinez-Ortega, who we're happy to see is not trapped on the highway in uh, North Carolina in a snowstorm, which is where she was driving back from Texas, which was a very real possibility. Glad that you're both here. And how are you both doing in this post Martin Luther King Day week here? Hey, Steve, I'm doing well overall. Thanks. And you know, I'm excited about today because I'm the one who's been pushing for a while for us to do an episode on redistricting. And now the timing is just is just right. So I'm glad that we're going to get into that today. And I know on the surface, it doesn't seem like the sexiest topic, that it's yeah, just much of been part of my <laughs> resistance to getting into it. But as I've been doing more research for this episode, it is juicy. It really, it's really fa- it's fascinating. Maybe I'm just a nerd. I am a nerd and I'm proud, but I'm it's just been an interesting journey for me to kind of learn things as an American, as a voter, to be like, this is what makes it work. Like, this is so important. It's not just a bunch of maps and numbers. And yes, it can seem really confusing, but it is such a foundation of our electoral system and fundamentally what makes our democracy work. And yet most people either don't know, really know about it or vaguely know about it. But if you ask them to explain it, they're like, oh, you know, I don't really know. It's maps. (laughs) It gets changed every now and then. And then it impacts, but it's uh, a lot of it just is like very kind of mysterious. So, you know, I, for one, have just had a lot of questions about a lot of how it works and the history of it. And also, like a lot of people, how this new round of redistricting might impact elections for Democrats, progressives around the country this midterm election year. And I think it's appropriate that we're still in the week of commemorating and honoring Dr. King's birthday. And I'm really glad that we're here with Julie because we haven't had her on for a bit and I miss her. Julie, how you doing? I'm doing great. Thanks. Um, it's good to be here with you both. Happy uh, New Year. I don't think I'm going <laughs> to wish you a Happy New Year officially. Thank you. Thank you. Same to y'all and to everybody out there. Yeah, I'm glad to put 2021 behind us and to start a new year fresh. And we have some really good things to look forward to in the, in the coming year. It's funny, Charlene, you're talking about the how the country works and the maps and how this actually functions and our democracy reminded me of, and I remember this, Julie, when we first started working together when you were in the DC context, this was like 15 years ago or whatever. One of the first things that Julie says and does is we have to order the congressional map. And so they bought this <laughs> huge saying, map. Awesome. It's like whatever, four <laughs> feet by four feet to put on the wall at every single congressional district in the country. Yep. Yep. That's right. I find it exciting. Yeah, we're just a special breed. <laughs> that's great. So to frame things up before we actually talk about redistricting, let me just say that we have basically been hearing two main themes about this year's midterms. And Steve, I know you talked about this, but I just want to kind of reiterate that there is this belief that the president's party, quote unquote, always loses. Essentially, the party that's in the White House always loses House seats and you know other seats during the midterms. And therefore, because statistically that's true, we're doomed. And yes, 
that has been overall true, that since 1994, the president's party has lost the House in popular vote in six out of seven midterm elections. Steve will fill in the butt part later. Secondly, coming off of the 2020 census in particular, there is this concern that gerrymandering as the result of redistricting, which by the way, for those who don't know, takes place like the census once every 10 years, was going to wipe out a bunch of Democratic seats because Republican-controlled legislatures would redraw maps to Democrats' disadvantage. And again, I'll get to explaining redistricting in a minute. But first, Steve, you say that the assumption that the party that is in power always loses Congress seats during midterms is actually inaccurate. Why is that? Well, I'd say that the analysis of that is incorrect. What was funny is that you were saying that I was all like, oh, what was the 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 one time where it actually didn't occur? <laughs> that was actually was 1998 when the Bill Clinton was in power actually increased the number in the House of Representatives. And that was in the middle of the impeachment scandal. And that people were kind of all like, well, maybe you should be impeached more often, right? <laughs> in terms of like the actual <laughs> outcome of how that plays itself out. But it does get to this fundamental point though, I think about explaining the importance of, of the voters understanding the stakes of what's happening. So there's this whole thing, you know, Julie, you kind of get into it as well around causation and correlation, et cetera. And so, so it is a fact that usually the party of the president loses seats in the House in the midterm election. But you have to understand why that is the case. And that's what's so wrong about the analysis. And so the assumption and the way that the media covers it is that in the midterm, the voters usually sour on the president and turn against the president and vote his party out of power. And that's not at all what is happening in the election. And what happens is that the people who are in the party of the president tend to get relaxed, satisfied, lose the sense of urgency around the importance of voting. And so they don't turn out to vote in the midterm elections in the same level they did in the presidential, whereas the out of power party is still mad at the president and they're more motivated and they turn out in bigger numbers. And so that is the fundamental dynamic, the question of voter turnout, not a question of the electorate switching and, and, and rebelling against and punishing the president's party. And so in that standpoint, then it's simply a question of can you get your people out to vote? And if you do, then you will actually win the way that you did when you actually won the White House just two years ago. So it's that fundamental difference between the understanding of who is comprised the electorate and what is your analysis of who they actually are in terms of how this is actually playing itself out. And so Jonathan Capehart did a very good, well, I say very good because he used the charts from Brown is the New White, but he did a very good piece on the MSNBC, and we'll link to that um, in the show notes as well, that talk about this whole point around midterms. And he uses the charts where we show that there was a drop off in 2010 when the Democrats lost a lot of seats uh, of Republican votes. Republicans had like a 7 million fewer people turn out. Democrats had 20 million fewer people actually turn out to vote. And that's why we lost the House. Not that all the voters rose up in arms. So that's a pretty critical piece. And then and the fundamental thing about it is it's all about turnout. So and we saw the power to overcome the forces that you know work against there being voter turnout in the in the Georgia runoff elections, right? Right after the holidays of Christmas, people are tired, their attention is not focused. And that's why they have these elections at that point in time anyways. And yet with strong organizing, heavy investment, we were able to actually flip those seats. And so 
the power of investing in mobilizing and turning out voters is quite profound. And I keep coming back to, you know, Biden let it slip uh, right after the election when he's in November 2020. He's all like, we're still in the game in Georgia. Um, we didn't expect that. And so Biden didn't expect it, but Stacey Abrams did. And the voter mobilization operation did, New Georgia Project and America Votes and all the other organizations that are down there. And so if you turn out your voters, you can actually win an election. And so that's the fundamental misconception of what is distorting all of the analysis that you're reading about these midterm elections and why the Democrats are so doomed. They look at that data set that the in-power party usually loses, but they fail to understand what that data set really means and how it can be overcome. So, Steve, I get that you use the Georgia example. It's a great example. And it is amazing to me how if you read mainstream political analysis that there's, it's as if that's never happened. It's exactly. like so mind-blowing how seldomly it's brought up as a case study. But in your opinion... What will it take this year to for Democrats to win these midterm elections? Right. And so, yes, it is, and it is so maddening. So you would think that people would look at the places where you won and say, oh, how did we do that? And how do we replicate that? Mm -hmm. Right. But instead, most of the analysis is places where we didn't win. Well, if you look at the Texas border, we didn't get the turnout that we wanted, et cetera. And so that's all the attention going there rather than replicating what worked. What worked was Georgia. And there are three essential elements of what happened in Georgia. And if we apply those elements and lean into that in 2022, I absolutely believe that Democrats can hold their majority, can hold the House, and I actually think they can expand the majority in the Senate. So first, investing in civic engagement. We have to move massive amounts of money to the civic engagement groups and to the work that's taking place in terms of engagement. We talked you know, a lot on this podcast, where, you know, obviously one of our first guests was you know, Stacey Abrams, and we were been on this journey with her for a decade. And I remember she was trying to raise her first, you know, $50,000, $100,000. And it, that was not easy. What they did with Fair Fight and her constellation of organizations that did civic engagement work, protecting the vote, they raised $100 million in 2020. And it took all of that. And then Warnock raised $100 million. And then Ossoff raised $100 million and took all of that work going into getting out the vote and then to supporting organizations, New Georgia Project, America Votes, Mijente PAC, Asian Americans Advancing Justice, all doing massive voter mobilization to get historic levels of turnout, certainly historic levels of turnout for a midterm election. So voter mobilization, investing the money to do that. That's the first piece. Second, backing and running candidates who come from, reflect, and can inspire the new American majority. So in 2022, there's three there's several examples, but three particular places where you have that element. Right? So Val Demings running for a black woman sheriff running for Senate in Florida. Sherry Beasley, black woman, uh, Supreme Court judge running for Senate in, in North Carolina. And Mandela Barnes, the African-American young man, inspiring candidate, who's the uh, lieutenant governor of Wisconsin, running for Senate in Wisconsin. They are candidates of the type who can inspire, connect with, and boost turnout. That's the second piece. And the third is communicating what's at stake in the urgency of the fight. And so that gets the messaging that gets to explaining and being willing to call out the attacks on voting rights, the attacks on people of color, and, and, and giving people a sense of the urgency of the moment. And that's something that's going to be a big challenge because Democrats tend to try to downplay those things as much as possible. But that is going to be a, a third core component. Okay, so turning to our main topic today in terms of redistricting, like I said before, every voter 
I feel should understand redistricting, how it affects how we vote. And I think a lot of us could use a primer on what it is and how it works exactly. So I have this quote here from Loyola Law School professor and founder of All About Redistricting, Justin Levitt, defines redistricting as the way we change districts that determine who represents us. Basically saying that redistricting is the once a decade process of drawing up new congressional and state legislative districts across the country to keep the population roughly even in each district. I mean, that's the that's the intent. And so that this impacts representation in U.S. House seats as well as state legislatures. And the reason why state legislators and in 11 states, by the way, it's an outside panel that does this. So the reason why state legislators redistrict is to keep up with changing population trends by geography. And that's why the process takes place after new census numbers are released every 10 years, which just happened. Redistricting has a major influence on how political power gets distributed, as you you would come to you know understand, because, because of how the process influences how maps are drawn, and also because a lot of this takes place behind closed doors, it limits input from citizens con- and community organizations, and it keeps politicians in control of what wards and districts look like. This can create incentive to manipulate those district lines for political gain, as you can imagine, or what's known as gerrymandering, which is by definition the manipulation of the boundaries of the maps and how the maps are drawn to benefit one party or class over another. And that's why there's an increasing movement from all over across the country, but from California to Missouri to reform redistricting because people just feel like, you know, it makes sense. Like letting politicians essentially choose their own voters presents a conflict of interest and it just puts them in a position of having too much power over, you know, who their voters are going to be. So, Julie, so the data geeks have been looking closely at redistricting this time around and just predicting that Republicans are going to pick up seats and it's going to weigh in their favor. But then Cook Political Reports, Dave Wasserman recently wrote that that's not the case. Can you bring us up to speed? Sure. So I think there's, you know, a lot of talk about expectations and then there's sort of some of the reality behind it. Right. So big picture is that there are 435 seats, each of which represents a member of Congress, right, that represents the people in that district and in that state in D.C. And those seats get distributed all around the country, depending on, as you said, changes in geography. So if you have a lot of people moving out of California and into Texas, let's say, then you're going to have some of those seats reallocated from a place that used to have a larger population to places with now growing populations. So with this 435 seats, in order to determine who will be in control of the House and who will have the speakership, you look at half of those 435 seats. So you need 218 seats in order to hold the majority of seats in the House. So currently we have 222 seats held by Democrats, and there are 213 seats that are either held by Republicans or there's one that's currently vacant. So that's where the last seat comes from there. So in the year 2010, in that election, Democrats lost badly, right? That's sort of like the the low watermark in terms of how bad things could get. And that in that 
election, we lost 63 seats. So, I mean, that was just horrific. If you anybody was around following politics, then you remember how bad that was. So that's like the most we have to fear pretty much. But when you look at how things are playing out across the country as a whole with respect to the redistricting process. And if you look in those states that have already pretty much finalized what their maps are going to look like, of course, there'll be different partisan control that is exerted, right, in different states, depending on who runs their state legislature. And as folks may No, but I'll remind you, most of the state legislatures are run by Republicans at this point in time. So that obviously gives rise to a lot of concerns about what will these new redistricting maps look like? How badly will they harm Democrats' prospects going forward? So in terms of where things are starting to stand, we don't have a complete picture yet because not all of the states are finished with the the work that they have to do on redistricting. But thus far, what we're getting from groups like uh, the Cook Political Report team, uh, and in particular, Dave Wasserman, whose focus is on the House, right? So they're currently modeling a net gain of 2.5 House seats for Republicans as we go into this year's midterms. Now, I'm saying modeling that sort of a gain, meaning that If you just sort of build little mathematical formula that help give you a sense of which way each seat is going to lean, does it look like it's leaning more Republican, more Democrat? Using those sorts of very basic models, it looks like Republicans will get a slight advantage of 2.5 House seats. Let me just interject and highlight that point, is that the Democrats can can have a four seat margin, basically, in the House right now. And there had been fears, I had had this fear, that the redistricting was going to be cataclysmic for us in terms of we would lose, you know, they would they would redraw the lines, we would lose like, you know, a dozen or a couple dozen seats, something in that line. But what Wasserman, is, what Julie's pointing out, what Wasserman is saying is that what, what's come up forward so far is just upon the redrawing, we're only projected to lose 2.5 seats. And again, we have a four-seat margin. So that doesn't even get to the issue on what's possible with mobilization, et cetera. But I just, in terms of the raw redistricting piece, I want to put a, you know, em- emphasize that point of what Julie's just saying, but 2.5 is as bad as it looks at the moment, which is not nearly as bad as we thought it would be. Right. So despite all the drama and, you know, fears being raised about how bad things could look just based on redistricting alone, we're actually not, we, technically via the model, right, we would not necessarily lose the uh, control of the house. So, the so let me ask maps- you a question, Julie, mm-hmm. on this yeah. on the Wasserman thing and the Cook political report, because all these like experts and data geek people and whatnot who hold themselves out. It's interesting, um, slight <laughs> diversion, but not right. So I'm you know, trying to wrap up my manuscript, and I've been really obsessed with, not obsessed with, inspired by, probably obsessed too, Isabel Wilkerson's book Cast, mm-hmm. and she talks about the how the roles that people play in this country have been they're decided you know, hundreds of years ago, who gets to play what role and who gets to play the leading person role, right? And then and I was thinking that translates out to like all of the angst and, and, and upset people had when it was proposed that Idris Elba would play James Bond, right? Is that, <laughs> that's not what James Bond looks like, right? And so, so you have that. And so the role of data geek within the certainly Democratic Party data geek, you know, is always a white guy. 
who's like, you know, got all these different numbers at their fingertips and whatnot. And it gives them exalted influence over the media and over interpretations of what goes on, which is a lot of why we want to lean into the draw, I think, full advantage of Dr. Julie Martinez Ortega's data expertise. And as I told her once, her PhD is a collective asset that we're drawing on. So one of the things that everybody looks to is something called PVI in terms of understanding a district and whether or not it's, you know, Democratic Republican. Can you just explain a little bit, Julie, what PVI is? Sure. So PVI stands for Partisan Voting Index, and it's something that was created by Charlie Cook of the Cook Report. So it's sort of become this thing that everybody refers to and uses as if it was dropped from the heavens. So all it is is a calculation that's done by comparing a congressional district's average Democratic or Republican Party share of a presidential vote, right? So in, let's say, the Texas District 23, the Democrat won by, say, five points, right? And they look at that over the past two presidential elections. So let's say in one year they won by five points, the next year they won by 10 points. And so it's average amount and you get 7.5, right? So that tells you, oh, that's a D plus 7.5 district. It's pretty darn democratic. You're going to have a hard time winning there. They're, they're very, as, as things have become more polarized around the country, we're seeing fewer and fewer districts that have, say, a, a D plus one or an R plus one rating. You see places that have, you know, two digit number ratings. So, you know, places that are very Republican, places that are very Democratic. So this PVI number is a useful thing because it tells you what's the general record of how people in that particular district tend to vote in terms of which party they favor, right, at the presidential level. But it doesn't tell you the whole story, right? So there's a lot, there are many other factors that impact how voters will actually vote in any given district. So that you end up with situations where you've got a D plus five, yet a Republican runs for Congress and wins in that district because of a whole host of different things that might have gone on there. So I just want to, I just want to share this example in terms of illustrating the, uh, both the problems and the potential in terms of looking solely at these narrow models and not factoring in and not incorporating how you can impact what happens in election by engaging and mobilizing, turning out people, particularly turning out voters of color, right? That's just not built into the model. Julie's talking about PVI, you look at past performance, how people voted historically, you try to predict based upon that as if there are no other intervening variables. So what happened in 2018 is that there were some donors who wanted to move money to try to flip House districts, how to get the Democrats to take back the House in 2018. And so we had done this exhaustive analysis. Julie did the under, it was fairly, you know, elaborate formula, far more sophisticated than PVI in terms of the factors and past voting history and the demographic trends, et cetera, et cetera, to identify the most promising districts that could be flipped. And so one of them was California 21, kind of Central Valley, California. It was held by a Republican. At that time it was 21. I think now it's California 22. And it was David Valdeo. And that district was a majority Latino. The Republican had won by like 12,000 votes, but there were 100,000 Latinos who had not voted in that district. And so these donors said, we want to go and put money into uh, flipping this district. 
And so particularly working with this group, Communities for New California, which has its roots in the United Farm Workers Movement and organizing and connecting to Cesar Chavez's work, et cetera. So the leadership of the House Super PAC, right, House Majority PAC, set, told these donors, don't go in that district. There's a lot of Latinos in that district, and they don't vote in midterms. So we should find other districts that are more promising. And that was what this mindset, looking at these variables to understand how do you impact things. And so, you know, I encourage them to push back. Oh, they said, our polling doesn't show that's good. It's like, how is it possible your polling doesn't show good? It's a majority Latino district and two-thirds of Latinos are Democratic, right? Terms of what's your polling universe, right? So they pushed back and they ultimately got the super PAC to relent, moved, gave money to Communities for New California to contact voters and boost Latino vote. Contacted 30,000 people, called them, knocked on their doors, followed up, got them to turn out to the polls. We won that seat and flipped that seat by 800 votes. So that's my favorite story of the 2018 election because it shows how these models and all of this data stuff that they do obfuscates what can actually be done if you have both data and an understanding and cultural competence around how to impact and change what happens in an election. And then I would just jump in there that those organizations really benefit from anybody who invests in them, right? I mean, re- exactly, and they're not resources to them. People don't see that they're the ones. That's so that when we did the Democracy in Color report card in 2020, right? The Senate Majority PAC had spent $7 million in Iowa and zero in Georgia in as of August 1st, 2020, in terms of what it would take to flip those seats. So there's just a lack of respect for the groups doing the work, which it turns out to be the work that is necessary to win these races. So, Julie, I wanted to ask you a question. The burning question, I'm sure, is on all the listeners' minds at this point. So what is the latest in terms of this round of redistricting? Where does everything stand at this point? I know you said not everything is done yet, but what do we know and where do things stand right now? So at this point, there are 26 states that have finished drawing their maps. That's the latest I was able to find off of the 538 website. Then there are another six states with just one congressional district. So they don't really have much to decide because it's all the entire state. And then there are several other states that are still working on their plans and you know still need to com- get to completion on that. So we have in total 34 states that have completed their work and where we know what those lines will look like. Those actually total to 293 of the 435 seats, right? So that's over two thirds of the seats in the house have already been settled. Yeah, and just to, just to add a little quick, so Julie mentioned 538. So 538.com, people, some people may know Nate Silver kind of got famous as a data person. And so they, they're tracking this carefully and they have good data. I would just caution people around the interpretation of their data, but the actual data they have um, is good. And so they've got good information there. And then the other reality to all this too, right, is there's a number of court cases, right? Because Republicans do everything they can to, you know, try to draw these lines to, you know, carve out people of color where they can. Um, and then it often gets challenged in court, et cetera, et cetera. So particularly in Ohio, which I was quite surprised because things are so conservative there now that they did throw out the lines, the courts did. And so that's, that's going to be up in the air around where we actually go from there. And it's just going to be interesting too, as a big picture thing is traditionally you tried to like draw the lines in ways that marginalize people of color, but we're kind of everywhere now. And so like in the suburbs, we're in, you know, and so it's kind of, yeah, it's like try to, try to draw us now, draw us exactly. out now. What are you going <laughs> to, 
<laughs> you have to figure out some crazy map drawing. Exactly. So as Steve mentioned, Democrats can win big this year if, if they put in gear, and I would add ASAP because clock is ticking. It's January. It's going to be the end of January soon. And the election year is well underway. If they put in gear as soon as possible, the right mobilization strategies and increased turnout and support groups on the ground, they can win big. But before all of that, it would be to their advantage to go ahead and pass comprehensive voting rights legislation. So, Steve, at this point, many of us are aware that Senators Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema are the last holdouts against abolishing the filibuster. And things aren't looking so good for voting rights legislation to get passed by Congress, unfortunately. We're expecting actually a showdown this week as Senate Democrats bring the John Lewis Voting Rights Amendment Act and the Freedom to Vote Act to the floor. So by the time you hear this episode, the Senate may have voted and we'll try to follow up on that. Steve, you published a column recently in The Guardian where, by the way, you're now going to be a regular columnist. Congratulations. Celebrate. Thank Ooh. you. In, a, in addition to your monthly column with The Nation, you're going to be a busy writer this year. <laughs> you thought, you know, you could rest after writing the book. <laughs> but where you reflect in that article in The Guardian on the voting rights fight, where you put it into bigger context and discuss what happened and where we go from here. So can you just share with us again some of the high points, sort of takeaways of that piece you wrote for The Guardian and we'll post a link to that article in the show notes. Yeah, I, there's, um, it's been somewhat, uh, I don't know, calming or it helps me, you know, it's good for my blood pressure to look at this stuff through the context of history. So as I'm, you know, finishing the manuscript for the book and trying to frame this moment in continuity from the Civil War, I see this moment in context that, that can compare it to other things. It's like, well, we've actually seen worse in terms of where we're at. So I think there's three quick top takeaways that I'm uh, experiencing in terms of seeing this moment, right? And so the first is that for the, ma the majority of American history, white politicians have always been reluctant to include non-white people in the democracy. The House of Representatives could not pass even the 13th Amendment, which outlawed slavery. It took a number of attempts to get enough votes to get that out of the House. And that was when there were no Confederates in the Congress. They had all succeeded. And so even the, our supposed allies could not pass the 13th Amendment banning slavery out of Congress. And that was a whole big, difficult fight. And so then the 14th and 14th to 15th Amendments were also the president of the United States. Right? So just, just the, <laughs> they assassinated Lincoln because he was, wanted to end slavery, which then elevated Andrew Johnson to become the president. Andrew Johnson as president opposed the 14th Amendment and the 15th Amendment in terms of the equal protection of the state's laws and in terms of voting rights. And so Johnson says in, in opposing the 14th Amendment that the distinction of race and color is made to operate in favor of the colored and against the white race. And so this whole notion about anything people of color is going to harm white people is longstanding. And so you take that mindset and look at Every single Republican is opposed to voting rights extension and continuity. And then you get Manchin and Sinema um, as well in terms of their lack of priority of it. And they're more concerned about the rules of that body than they are about the disenfranchising people of color. The oppression of people of color does not stir them up to the point where they would actually want to take action. So historically, none of this is new. And so uh, that gives me a sense that just fits in a long continuity 
of history of trying to suppress our vote. And then linked to that is another important point I think in terms of our analysis to understand is that it does reflect that the Biden administration does not think that voters of color are the most important part of their coalition. And that you see it by the fact that we're, this, we're a year in and now we're just getting to, vote, to voting rights, whereas we did this whole an infrastructure bill. And by definition, that was not urgent because those are things that have been going on for ages and for you know the bridges and the roads have been neglected for decades, all of which are important, but so is democracy, right? And so the decision to go around infrastructure is a reflection of trying to get bipartisan support as a way to convince white voters in the middle that, that they should get with the Democrats, rather than doing everything possible to protect and support to be able to, to boost the voters of color. So that's, I think, a reality that we do need to engage in, in a principled struggle and debate with the uh, Biden administration and their allies about. But the third fundamental thing is that because you see this is all, none of this is new. There's a whole s- slew of voter suppression in 2013 from voter ID, et cetera, in 2018 in Georgia after Stacey does, well, part of the reason they defeated Stacey is because they purged 300,000 people from the rolls improperly in, in Georgia, but we still beat Trump and we still flipped the Senate. And so organizing can win and that the reason they are so aggressively trying to suppress us is because they can count and they can see the numbers and the tide is in our favor. And so we need to continue to try to push for these voting rights pieces, but it's part of a much larger struggle around expansion of democracy. And if we just continue to double down and do all of that, and we probably have a whole episode in the future around the, the multiplicity of things we can do beyond a bill to really foster a national crusade for democracy, to making it a cause and something that can't be suppressed. And so we'll look at taking that up in the future, but I think we've probably exhausted even the the nerds among our audience uh, in terms of this topic for today. Okay. So before we go, I thought we would go around and share one of our favorite quotes by Dr. King, or I wanted to actually take a spin on it and just give a very quick anecdote that's kind of related and inspiring. So I'll go first, uh, which is that my daughter, she's 10 now, and she follows, you know, what's happening in this country politically, because we we teach her about, you know, all the things that are happening. And so lately I said to her, would you, would you like to share some of your allowance and contribute it to Stacey Abrams campaign? And she's a big Stacey Abrams fan. She knows all about the great work that Stacey's doing. But she said, you know, I'm saving my money for a Lego set and some video games. And, <laughs> and I said, yes, but, you know, think about it. There's a lot at stake this midterm election. And Stacey could become the first black female governor in our history and all the great changes she can make to this country. She's like, yeah, but I really want that Lego set and this particular video game. And then she kind of just paused. And I said, but remember what it was like under Trump. And she goes, you know, (laughs) she goes, mom, you're right. So she ran over to her like piggy bank and pulled out a dollar. And she goes, here, here. I, I want to contribute to her campaign. Oh, that's awesome. <laughs> but the way she said, oh, mom, you're so right. It was like, <laughs> it, you know, it dawned her on her like the urgency is still there. I just wanted to share that in the, in the spirit. How about you, Julie? <laughs> I love that story. Okay, so mine, mine is, um, I'm going to share a quote uh, from Martin Luther King Jr. that is directed toward mansion and cinema. So the great stumbling block in the stride toward freedom is not the white citizens counselor or the Ku Klux Klanner, 
but the white moderate who is more devoted to order than to justice, who prefers a negative peace, which is the absence of tension, to a positive peace, which is the presence of justice, who constantly says, I agree with you in the goal you seek, but I can't agree with your methods of direct action. And that's from letter from a Birmingham jail. Damn, he's good. <laughs> yeah, that's so good. That's spot on. How about you, Steve? I just I'd like to refer people to the Twitter thread by Nicole Hannah-Jones, where she's just got a whole bunch of king quotes that people would not have actually thought came from him in terms of how we actually describe him, right? It's just one, you know, the white backlash of today is rooted in the same problem that has characterized America ever since the black man landed in chains on the shores of this nation. Right? I mean, it's just a very direct, confrontational and radical assessment and, 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 and call to action for this country, which is not how the picture gets painted mm-hmm. uh, on the King holiday. So. And we'll po- post a link to that thread so people can right. check it out. That's great. All right. So that is all the time we have for today. Thank you for listening to Democracy in Color with Steve Phillips. Please help us get the word out about this podcast by subscribing wherever you get your podcasts, sharing with your friends, tweeting at Democracy in Color and at Steve P. Tweets, and finding us at Democracy in Color on Facebook or subscribing to our newsletter, democracyincolor.com. Newsletter comes out every week, chock full of what we're reading, what we're watching, analysis, et cetera. So you can sign up there. Democracy Color is also now on Instagram, which our young staff and follow Onifade tells me is a social media uh, platform that I'm trying to understand. And you can follow us on Instagram at Democracy in Color. And if you listen to our podcast on iTunes, please leave us a rating and a comment. This podcast is a Democracy in Color production produced by Olivia Parker, with support from Charlene Chang, Fola Onifade, and April Elkier. Recorded virtually with the assistance of the podcast studio San Francisco. Until next time, keep the faith.